Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. John Paul II took his name from his predecessor, who died after only 33 days in office. He was the second longest-serving pope, occupying the papacy from 1978 to 2005. The Polish pope lived through Nazi occupation as a child and was instrumental in the downfall of communism in his home country, the Eastern Bloc, and Russia. He's also credited with improving relationships with the Jews, being the first pope to make an official visit to a synagogue. His views on sex, articulated in his writing and speech and collected together as his theology of the body, were fairly traditional, if more voluminous than his predecessors, and are widely cited in both Catholic and Protestant literature on the subject. For a man who had never married and was ordained at the age of 26, this was an ambitious project, to define God's intention for romantic love, sex, and marriage. While he did not adopt the Manichaean view that the body was evil, and in fact directly criticized it, he charted a fairly narrow path for good Catholic sexual morality. On gay rights, he affirmed the basic human dignity of homosexual people, but he worried whether attempts to legalize gay marriage were part of a new ideology of evil overtaking the Western world. John Paul II was also the reigning pope for many of the Church's most egregious scandals and cover-ups surrounding sex crimes perpetrated by the Catholic clergy, members of the Catholic. While he had no direct personal responsibility for these crimes, they cast a shadow on his calls for sexual innocence and bodily purity. The Pope of the 80s and 90s, and even some of the 2000s, frames today's second part of our exploration of Christian sex education. You will be uh, not surprised at all, I'm sure, dear confessors, that the person I have asked to be with me here today to talk about the Pope is none other than our Catholic in residence. Please welcome back Riley Claxton Hernandez. Riley? Hi. I'm so happy to be here. To remind everyone, your first child named after John Paul II... He is. His name is John Paul. <laughs> so, so you did a good job. I feel like I'm That's the person here, one. right? That's the, who else should be here talking about John Paul II's view on the theology of the body? You're, you got some familiarity with this, yes? I do. I love the theology of the body. Mm-hmm. I, I read the theology of the body for the first time at 16 years old all the way through. Wow. wow. Yeah. Well, what do you mean all the way through? I, I read Love and Responsibility. I read his... Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I read so, like a collection of his thoughts on theology of the body, like all the themes. You yes. know what I mean? I don't have time for it, it's thick, eight hundred pages or whatever. Yeah, was it, it was it's, it's a big old thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Let's pledge it out. <laughs> we, the members of, of the, the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, so now I, I warned Riley that her job may be to yell at me today. We'll see what happens. Riley's here as a counterpoint to my madness because I got to be honest, Riley. I, there's a couple times I worked on, I was working on Christian sex ed. I hadn't read Theology of the Body yet, but it kept coming up. And, and I started thinking of you because I know you really love this. Uh, and I said, okay, fine. I, I'm just going to finally going to read it. So it's not like a book you can read. There are different, you know, yeah. versions of it. So I got this, you know, sort of like collection of his, of John Paul's ideas on Theology of the Body. Um, and, and that is finally what pushed me to publish, to, to decide that I'm going to do this episode because I had these thoughts that I'm going to share today. Uh, 
before and I, I pulled them back. I said, I'm not going to put these on the air because theologically I wasn't comfortable with them until I read John Paul II. And then I was all right with them, but you may not be as okay with them because I know the Catholic Church has strong feelings about some of the things I'm going to advocate for. Anyhow, let's stop being so uh, vague and get into the details. John Paul II began his argument about the meaning of Christian marriage with Adam and Eve, a fairly common approach going all the way back to Augustine. Unlike St. Augustine of Hippo, John Paul uh, treated the Genesis story as an allegory. I want to be fair here and, and thorough. Augustine was comfortable with people talking about Genesis as an allegory, but preferred to literalize it as much as possible, um, which was its own intellectual challenge. Anyhow, John Paul was good with it being an allegory, uh, an allegory that contained, however, the literal word of God. John Paul said, that the language of Genesis is mythical, reflecting a deeper way of knowing, and also that the vision of man found in Genesis doesn't require us to renounce science or to ignore its findings. All right, we see what he's up to here. We got to deal with Darwin when we're reading Adam and Eve. As Pope, he had accepted evolution as in no way contradicting church teaching, but science contradicts the literal words of Genesis, and so for Genesis to make sense as a source for understanding ourselves and our sexuality, we have to read it figuratively. God placed humans on earth and set humans apart from the animals because humans alone were made in God's image. Humans are placed in the natural world and are part of it, but we are also separate from or above it. For this reason, Adam felt alone among the animals and asked God for a partner, namely Eve. Thus was the beginning of human intimacy and love and everything else interhuman. Adam and Eve were originally unashamed of their nakedness because they were fully open and honest with each other and with God. Again, this is a John Paul reading. They literally and figuratively had nothing to hide. There was no opposition between the physical and the spiritual. The body expressed the desires and inclinations of the spirit. Sex in this state was an opportunity to rediscover the mystery of creation. It was a selfless act of self-giving that mirrored the Creator's love for His creation. This is the proper way for contemporary humans to approach sex, says the Pope. Now, the mere suggestion that Adam and Eve had sex in the garden would be anathema to our 300, year 300, year 400 Catholic. Yeah. Yeah, crazy idea. Uh, Augustine's suggestion that they ever had sex... What what am I saying here? That that uh, that that they could have had sex. Augustine said they didn't have sex in the garden, but that they could have, and he was pushing the boundaries there. Uh, John Chrysostom, not not a, anyhow, uh, <laughs> getting too nerdy. So, what are we talking about? Sex. Uh, so, contra Augustine, John Paul suggested it's possible for contemporary humans to achieve Adam and Eve-like innocence through their church-sanctioned marital sexual unions. I'll also say Augustine did not feel this way, that sex was something that we really needed to reserve for procreation and try not to enjoy it too much. Nakedness only became shameful when Adam and Eve no longer approached each other as gifts, but rather viewed each other as objects, when their perspective shifted from giving to taking. Their choice to put on clothing was a sign that they had lost their understanding of the true spiritual value of their bodies. Such was the knowledge of good and evil. So far, so good, Riley? Yeah. All right. Following the fall, we become subject to lust. I should try to make that sound worse than I did. Oh, there you go. That helps. Yeah, yeah. I made it sound kind of sexy, which it literally is. John Paul. Lust. John Paul defined lust in interesting terms. First, he called it an insatiable desire. 
While this may be partially true for a 14-year-old, even the 14-year-old manages to hang out with his friends, ride or skateboard, play video games, and pass algebra class. Insatiable. John Paul's point is well taken that for that teenager, the sexual urge persists and returns on a regular basis, but it's difficult to fathom a situation in which that teenager would be able to actually satisfy those desires in a way John Paul approves of. Because we're really talking about marriage, right? Yeah. That's the appropriate outlet for sex, despite the fact that, you know, those feelings go back yeah. way before you can get married. It's equally difficult to imagine that we would want that teenager to feel badly about those feelings just because they weren't expressed in a perfectly innocent and selfless partnership. The word insatiable, in my opinion, becomes less applicable as we age. As adults, our sexual feelings may be strong at some times and less strong at others and are by no means constant and nagging uh, whether we are married or unmarried. Is that fair, Riley? Yeah. We, we get other stuff done. We think about other things. We podcast. He goes on to say that the lust of the flesh desires to satisfy the body in ways that limit or harm the communion of persons. For the man, lust stirs up an impulse to dominate and use the woman. I'm still going to pick on John Paul here, just so you know. Like, obviously, I'm going to pick on John Paul here. Naturally, Christian sexual ethics assume a heteronormative world with fixed gender roles. But this, in my opinion, is kind of an extreme way to talk about those gender roles. The notion that all heterosexual men's sexual feelings surface in a desire to dominate women reduces the vast, vast complexity of male sexuality in a way that's hardly coherent. Some men desire to be dominated by women. Many men are sexually gratified by pleasing their female partners regardless of the depth of their commitment to their partner and even put their female partner's pleasure first. Here I'm, I'm speaking about men who I don't know, just like to go down on women. They don't need to be married to them, but maybe their kink is that that's what they want to do. Uh, many couples outside of marriage are strongly motivated to please each other in their first, second, and third sexual encounters. This doesn't fit neatly into a drive to dominate. I mean, I definitely think that when I hear this, I think of younger people. I don't I don't think of the 50-year-old man. I don't think of, um, which I do think is a sign of his celibacy. And I don't know. And, and that may be also his only experience ever in a, a, the sexual or dating world was would have been as a teenager. Mm. It would, would have been a young person. And I, I do think that is where he's drawing some experience, his only experience, you Fair know, enough. where where teenagers are obsessed with with that that's you know they are I, I think that's if you would use the term insatiable i think that would define a younger person you sort of cut off at that point yes <laughs> yeah. he goes back to that's, that that yes and 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 even though many people who work for the church who who dictate the teachings of the church um the, the main thing that they are missing a lot of them is that lived experience that is so crucial to to understanding humanity as a whole mm -hmm. and if you're again you're and, and we, we pull from lived experience it's that what we do as humans so yeah i agree john paul said that the original commandments of the old testament aren't sufficient for christian sexual ethics because god originally allowed even the patriarchs to take multiple wives or for wives to allow their husbands to have sex with servants to produce children I and mean, this is smart the old testament's messy the New Testament, theoretically less messy. 
Marriage in the Old Testament, he said, was about ownership and procreation. Taking another man's wife, as in the commandment against adultery, was more of a violation of property rights. In this world where marriage and love had a more tenuous relationship, Jesus stepped in to clarify what marriage should mean in terms of the relationship between the partners. John Paul quoted the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus commands that we do not look lustfully at one another. It is not enough to keep our bodies from sin, says John Paul. Our hearts must also be transformed. He goes on. We are moral beings, capable of choosing between right and wrong and responsible for our decisions. I personally don't disagree. But when we're talking about regulating our sexual feeling in our hearts and minds, we've entered a level of moral self-policing that honestly is difficult to fathom. I am responsible for how I choose to act on my feelings, but can I prevent myself from being attracted to someone I meet or see? My reaction is automatic, arguably instinctual, much like my reaction to a glass of water on a hot day, or a loaf of bread when I'm hungry. Thoughts on this before I get into the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, so the Catholic teaching that I could also say has been hammered into me since <laughs> <laughs> then every talk I've ever heard and every... The you Sermon know, since on I the was, Mount's very yeah. popular. Um, well, the Catholic teaching specifically on looking with lust upon other people and, and policing our own thoughts is that um, finding someone attractive, finding someone sexually attractive, having sexual thoughts, none of those are in any way a sin. Mm -hmm. Having sexual thoughts about a person, all of these things, they're natural and... In the catechism, it says they are good and beautiful. Like, they're beautiful. They are that, 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 in no way a sin. It's where, what, what, what do we do with those thoughts? And if those thoughts then cause you to look at another person as a person to be used, to objectify another person, to ignore their, their dignity, their personhood, that is when they turn into sin. That's the emphasis of it. And so there's no way to, there is no these thoughts are okay and these thoughts aren't because for every person that's going to be different. It's upon us to to um, discern that within ourselves. You know, is this person, am I, am I looking at this person as a person? Am I, am I upholding their dignity? Am I valuing them as more than their body, as more than their sexuality, as more of, than what they could do for me? Even if you might have sexual feelings. Yeah. yeah. Because if we I, do. We have a sexual bearing Yes, and, and, all people. and that's natural. That is given by God. Mm -hmm. um, it's beautiful. It's good. It's it's just the church will say it's meant to be channeled in um, okay. a virtuous manner. And now whether or not you agree with what a virtuous manner is. So that's the that's, um, again, what I've been taught since a kid. But it's it's within you to decide because for every person, it's going to be different. Every person has different thresholds. Every person has different you know, issues. It's it's when that turns to use. It's when it turns to not valuing a human person. I feel whole. like uh, biblically, gospel-wise, you guys are amalgamating Luke and Matthew here. Honestly. Okay. Let me read you Matthew, okay. which will not be a surprise to you. Okay. But just think, just think about the words in light of what you just told mm -hmm. me. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So, 
what does the term lust mean? Okay. <laughs> I think that's that's the question here, and that's what a you lot of what John I'm Paul saying, talks though. about. But what is lust? Is lust okay. a sexual feeling? Sexual desire? Is that lust? In the Catholic term, no, it's not. Lust in the Catholic term is again about that, about the use. It's about how we treat and view another human person and erasing them of their kind of personhood, reducing them to their sex. Does that happen in our eye? Hmm. I mean, okay, he's not talking about ripping out your eye. Yo, so yeah. <laughs> yes. So the, the, I mean, yes, that does. I mean, it starts in your eye, but yes, what you're talking about your eye. is. And if, and if, and if, you know, viewing another person in that way causes you to to lust. But I think that's what it comes down to is what does what do you think lust means? And in the Catholic yeah. term, it doesn't just mean sexual desire. When you when we talk about lust, it's not just simple, simply sexual attraction. What else is it? It's when it turns into that uh, objectifying in objectifying, any way. Objectif objectification. How else do we objectify? And what do you what do you mean? Like if I use you for a promotion or something <laughs> like, I mean, i'm trying to it, think like if outside it truly of sex. degrades my personhood and and you know reduces oh, so me to if you're like a maid then that we go the other way if you're like my maid and i treat you as just like not a person but a person who a slave okay yeah. well, you're my maid i mean i'm paying you but <laughs> i i'm trying I... to like fathom the difference because slaves are cool in most of the bible <laughs> But in modern Catholicism, we would equate if treating someone like they're merely a, a factotum or somebody who is meant to just like do a job for me. Yes. That would be similar Service to sexual sexualizing sense. them. Yes. A contractor who comes to my house. But, I use there to fix my dishwasher. But a contractor coming to your house to fix your dishwasher, I mean, that is not degrading their humanity that's that's i hope not i mean i guess that's up to it, him it's not going against you know natural law yeah i mean it is if, if, you found a, if you found a dude on the street and and who who You're like, come was in and like fix i don't want to do i don't want to fix your dishwasher all right you know I, i'm i'm not here to fix your dishwasher and you said yes you are and and you you know shackled him into your house and you made him fix your dishwasher i mean it's an yes odd situation so we're mostly talking about sex then. yes we okay. are yes i mean but in general but uh, that's it's still objectification in different it's conceivable manners. to economically objectify someone yeah of course right, okay. i mean that's a whole different conversation though <laughs> let's so to i guess to drive riley's point home then let's let's listen to the tone in luke uh the sermon on the plane we talked about previous episodes how there's some argument about whether the sermon on the plane and the sermon on the mount were adapted from the same exact source do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Very similar. We talk about eyes in Luke. Plank in the eye. Mm -hmm. Pluck out the eye. Yeah. <laughs> but plucking out the eye in Matthew and removing the plank from your own eye in, in Luke, it's like two different Jesuses. We have angry Jesus yeah. And we have chill Jesus. Like, Jesus got real high before he did the Sermon on the Plain, and he got real mad yeah. before he did the Sermon on the Mount. I'd also argue that the main point, though, um, 
of Jesus saying, pluck out your eye if it causes you to lust mm-hmm. is that I think I think one of the main points is that your your lust and your issues are you. Okay. Your sin is 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 your issue. It's not anybody else's. You lusting after a woman is not the woman's issue. Right? It it is not the woman's problem that you are lusting after her. It's your issue. That's it's and so it's not the woman's job to, I don't know, figure it out. It's not the woman's job to disappear Dress or cover up or any of those yeah. ways. It's all right, if if your eyes causing you to lust, pluck it out. That's your it's your issue. I do think that's one of the so you're reconciling Luke and Matthew here. I think that's because I, I think that's the general theme. It's the same thing in in um, the Sermon on the Mount is him saying, you know, stop worrying about what other people are doing. Stop worrying about the the wood chip in you know your friend's eye when you've got a plank in your own. Um, I like that. Th- that that these are your issues to deal with it, and and your sin is is your issue. It's it's yours to take control of and not to blame on another person it's not anyone else's problem slut shaming through the eyes of jesus yeah all right i mean and that's i mean literally his response to some, you know it, it's, it's saying that if you are lusting after a woman pluck out your eye then it's not her <laughs> issue you know we don't tell her to put on more clothes she can wear it's, her bikini if she your wants issue it's yeah like you. you you your sexual desire turning to lust and your issue that's your own issue your problem yes In Matthew, Jesus asks us to strive for a kind of absolute sexual purity, although Riley disagrees. In Luke, Jesus (laughs) acknowledges that nobody's perfect. We should be cool to each other and recognize our own moral frailty rather than finding fault in each other. There is, as Riley says, theoretically consistency in these viewpoints. We should strive for perfection in ourselves, but tolerate imperfection in others. I I do think that plucking out the eye is really harsh, (laughs) like on yourself. This is a stringent, difficult attitude, I think, to take toward ourselves and threatens the notion that we should treat each other as we would like to be treated. We'd like to be held to an unforgiving moral standard related to our sexual feelings, lest we get cast into hell. The man mentions hell. Yeah. Right? So we need to be hard on ourselves, pluck out that eye. But we should forgive others their sins, which may, by the way, get them cast into hell. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. But, I mean, treat others like you want to be treated. Yeah. If you're treating yourself like hell is is a- Absolutely. I mean, and that leads to... Judgment. Can, you should be judging people harsher. It and right. all of those things. So, we just leave that. We're going to be like, oh, it's a tough one. I mean, okay. So, you're talking about <laughs> treating other people. I still think, like I mean, you it's a general treated. theme throughout the gospel and not in these, just these verses that, again, other people aren't, aren't you know... Your problem. We love other people. We show other people the love of Christ. We share the message, but ultimately, we worry for ourselves. I mean, he he says it. You know, Cain over did and over. say, "I'm not my brother's keeper." <laughs> so... I'm also talking about the gospel here specifically. Okay. All right, all right. But if Jesus's message in Cain general, generally not regarded as a hero though of the Catholic Church. <laughs> talking about Cain. <laughs> talking about Jesus. Okay. And he. I mean, it's it's throughout. You know, most of it again that, that we don't judge. It's it's another to person's love and job. not judge. We but love... we should judge ourselves. Not even that, though. I think. I mean, okay. ultimately, I, th- I mean, we don't want to go to hell. I mean, you could definitely could take it that way. I'm not saying you can. <laughs> I would say I, I definitely would say discernment. Hell. Okay. Is you know we're we're in charge of our own discernment, our own conscience, forming our conscience, listening to that, following that, okay, all of that, but that other people. Like, I think that's the the general theme is that it is not our job to judge other people, um, and that 
God is the ultimate judge and the wise judge. He's he he knows all things. He loves all of his creatures uh, and all of us down here. Yeah, even if our eyes are casting us into hell, he does. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's still the message, and that he's the and he he knows us better than he knows ourselves. All of those things, but um, I still think that's the main point of this message here is is again that that we are responsible for ourselves and not for anybody else, and so definitely shouldn't be judging anybody else when you yourself have a you know your issues too i think that's the still the main part of the issues yes and especially when you look at the context of the day you know the people who jesus was dealing with um i mean it was a lot a lot of judging i mean still today and so that when you when you also look at in the context of a lot of these discussions he was having with people these are a lot of the questions he was being asked well how do you deal with a person who did this and how do you judge a person who's been involved in this and this kind of person and what do you do in this situation that's a lot of it's a lot of the gospel it's a lot of people who it's a lot of what he's asked it over and over Mm -hmm. and that's a lot of what he's he's talking about just don't do it don't judge (laughs) let him be god will sort it out I'm going to dwell on this eye a little bit more. What Jesus has to say in Matthew about cutting out your eye can be read as a message about rooting out the internal inclination to sin in your soul. That's fair, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Changing the way you are in the world. When my daughter was born, for example, I gave up eating meat. This was a moral choice mostly centered on my environmentalism and my health. This is going to be an important metaphor, so hang with me. Uh, I wanted to do my part to make the world cleaner for my children, to be as healthy as possible, to raise them. And over time, my choice got easier because I had less interest in eating meat and eventually found a lot of it unappealing. But there are still moments in my life when I look lustfully on a bacon cheeseburger. The harm here, from Jesus' standpoint, correct me if I'm wrong, is that if I sit there and dwell on this temptation, I could eventually decide to give up and just eat meat again, which would betray my own moral principle. Yes. Yeah. So we don't want to just stare there lustfully at meat or human meat. (laughs) (laughs) Matthew's Jesus applies this to sex. When I got married, I gave up sex with women who weren't my wife. This was a moral choice uh, that I believe in, centered on my belief that a monogamous pair is ideal for fostering intimacy, providing emotional support through life's ups and downs, and raising children. I cannot say that my choice has gotten easier because I've had less interest in other women over over time, truthfully. While I often find other women attractive, I honestly never seriously entertain the idea of having sexual relationships with them. So it's really not a ch- problem for me. I'm not walking around like, oh boy, I would really love yeah. to have this affair because I got other things going on. What challenges my feelings of commitment to my wife, honestly, are conflicts in our home, <laughs> yeah. which all couples have for their own reasons. And it's conceivable that my conflicts or someone else's may then lead to an affair, but the root cause is not the lust. Yeah. It's the conflict. Most people think, I think I think even therapists often talk about an affair as a product of some other issues in the home. Yes. It's not lust I mean, in most, and of itself. most of the time, yes. Yeah. So the moral standard here goes deeper than preventing the act. And this is, you know, every <laughs> bloody sermon that's ever been given references the Sermon on the Mount, makes this point. Matthew's Jesus wants us to look inward and cut off the impulse to lust for its own sake, not merely to prevent committing adultery. So let's do some mental experiments here. Let's suppose I have a crush on a friend, and this friend is similarly attracted to me. This could lead me to entertain fantasies that pull me away from my wife and my heart. 
Even if I never act on these fantasies, I am less present for my wife and my family while my mind is on my fantasy mistress. Basic, yeah. Right? Basic idea. You're basically saying this. Yep. Going another way into this, uh, let's suppose I develop a habit of visiting, visiting certain pornographic websites. Catholics hate those pornographic websites, mm -hmm. Riley. I visit this website so much that I come to prefer self-pleasure with the website to sex with my wife. Matthew's or Jesus's point is very well taken, and I am okay with it in these instances. This makes good sense to me. However, <laughs> you knew this was coming. <laughs> the Bible imagines us having a fair amount of sex. My good Catholic. Yeah. Right? You're one of how many children again? I'm the oldest of seven. Right. So it's cool, right? Catholics, it's all good. <laughs> have a good time. It acknowledges, the Bible that is, that we have natural sexual drives. Genesis asks us to be fruitful and multiply. Y'all take that seriously, right? Yeah. It's an important line from that first book. But sex isn't always easy to come by in a world where we are limited to our marital partner for all sexual expression. Pregnancy is both the biological conclusion of sex and sometimes the greatest challenge to maintaining yes. a sexual relationship. Yeah. A man's inclination to sex persists with modest modification while his wife may find sex uncomfortable or mm -hmm. painful. This could last for all or part of a pregnancy and for months or years after giving birth. And we should be sensitive to our partner, yeah. right? If we imagine the standard old school family of five, which may sound huge today except to Riley, <laughs> but was fairly normal for a lot of human history, uh, those periods of time where the woman is not available take up a pretty significant portion of a marriage. Five kids, right? Seven kids. Yeah. It, could, it could stretch on, uh, especially if you have a birth injury. Biblical men, by the way, are also often leaving to go to war. <laughs> I mean, not in the Gospels, right? But Jesus was like, pack your shit and go too. Uh, they followed Christ. Uh, so I can easily make the same argument with the genders flipped. There are long stretches of time when monogamous sex isn't easy to come by biblically, uh, even though God has said we are made to become one flesh, presumably as a regular condition of our being as in the Garden of Eden. All right, so we see things are getting complicated. Yeah. So are you going to bring, are, is contraception coming up in this? It, we, I am not opposed to, to discussing contraception. Okay. I don't know if that is coming up already. I'm trying to, I'm deciding when I'm going to bring thought. up Let what. Me, okay. I'll, I'll bring this on, this particular <laughs> okay. point on home. You see where you want to go with this. I agree with Matthew and or Jesus that it would be wrong for, and by the way, Riley, mm -hmm. I do have questions about the degree to which gospel writers have inserted themselves into these narratives. Yeah. I do tend to buy the argument that Matthew was arguing with Paul and didn't agree with him on mm -hmm. a variety of things, particularly when it comes to the law of Moses. Anyhow, I agree with Matthew and or Jesus that it would be wrong for a young father or soon to be father to seek affection from other women rather than provide aid and comfort to his wife just as it would be wrong for a young wife to seek affection from other men rather than remain faithful to her husband who's away fighting a war. Not a big fan of wars, but it, <laughs> I get the, the moral principle there. But what happens to all those unsatiated sexual feelings? If I ignore my instinctual desires, this could also breed alienation between myself and my partner. I could become bitter or resentful that my wife or husband won't satisfy my needs. Sex, after all, is an important part of life, says the Bible. Aside from Augustine, many Christians came to think of Adam and Eve as living in sexual paradise. Sex was part of what made their pre-fall relationship wonderful. Just ask John Milton or John Paul II. 
<laughs> sex is good. And sexual desire is good and necessary for a good relationship. I'm not really getting to contraception here. I'm sort of talking around it. Um, <laughs> I'm, so, I mean, another point I was going to insert there is you're talking about pregnancy and all these things and, and long periods of time of not having sex and what that can do to a marriage, um, especially in Catholic teaching and it's everywhere is have all the sex. Sex is great. Sex is crucial to a marriage. We talk all about, I mean, the how, how spiritual sex is and the unity of body and soul and that coming together in sex in a marriage is, is needed for intimacy, you know, in general. Period. So an issue I have with that is obviously contraception is sinful mm-hmm. in Catholicism. Obviously. Yes. <laughs> and most I mean, and I maybe I'll make a little explanation as to kind of why um that might be, but again, we're talking a lot about physical unity and physical intimacy and uh-huh. I'll just this very short, but um and that the Catholic teaching is that contraception cuts off the fruitfulness nature of sex and that we're supposed to have sex in the way that God designed all of the things. It's it's life-giving. It's fruitful. Contraception cuts that off. There's a lot of writing about it. And vaginal intercourse. I mean, there's an opposition to, right? So Non-procreative okay. sex. Do you want a little Catholic sex ed really quick? I'm, uh, that's right. what we're here for, here we man. Go. Okay, so, <laughs> so buckle your seatbelts because right, I think a go, lot of people confessors. will be very surprised. It is time to learn about non-vaginal intercourse. So not only is contraception not allowed, uh huh, but in every sexual act in a Catholic marriage, uh-huh. the man must ejaculate into the woman. The man sh- cannot ejaculate outside of the woman. Intentionally, right, the, if it happens on accident, some Old is, Testament. Stuff, it is what it is. Yeah. the man must ejaculate into the woman. Now, everything else that protects the dignity of that person. So that that's the the line here is that we're still upholding the dignity of the other person, but everything else is a go, as long as it is within the marital act. So, so you can. All of the things are, are a go. Before, put on the masks. After, put as, on the furry suit. As long as it's as long. Swing from the chandeliers. But but the man must ejaculate into the woman. When all that, is said and that done, has to happen. <laughs> okay. The man cannot intentionally ejaculate outside of the woman. Okay. It has to happen. Yeah. Okay. In in the woman without contraception. Yes. Okay. Um, and I think, and a lot of people don't know that. A lot of Catholics actually don't even really know that. Um, a lot of non-catechized Catholics don't know that. Um, I don't think I knew that Until for a while. When did I they drop know. that on High you? High school. <laughs> what was that day like? <laughs> oh, I, I mean, there's definitely. I will. So you get a lot of these chastity talks growing up, and. It sometimes this isn't talked about. I mean, obviously, I, I mean, I get where we're not talking about nitty gritty like sexual marital sexual ethics with twelve year olds. Like that's not the focus of their lives. But I mean, they don't need to really know that. But there is kind of this idea of like, and once you get married, everything goes. You know what I mean? Like you the, just the have Wonderland. fun, yeah. and you can have sex morning and night and all the time. That's not and, a uniquely Catholic and, thing. Yeah, exactly. Protestants feel the similar way, but 
in Protestants, everything does, they're, they're you know, in most Protestantism, there's well, definitely obviously waves. Yes. yes. You know, there's none <laughs> of that. The You know, there, there's no ejaculation rules. There's none of right. that. There's, you know. And honestly, you, can you can't give... invite the prostitute from around the corner into your bed. There are no, some but rules. Within, but within, you know, <laughs> yes, your, your you couple, yeah, you know, you can. A great time. Yeah, you can give your husband a hand job and not worry about going to purgatory. You, you know, like you can. And you can't. But here's the other thing with that. So, so yes, Catholics can't contracept. And I, and I will say people that are far outside of Catholic and or crunchy circles might be like, well, then how the heck do you not have 25 kids? Mm -hmm. Some people do. And I would say most people that have, when you hear of Catholic families, I mean, one of a, a, a good friend of mine, you know how many, she's the oldest of? How many? 17. I can't fathom that. She's the oldest of 17. And guess how old she is? 24. What is the, the youngest is... Oh, one or two. Well, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. To actually fit all those children into... Anyway. Wow. So I, I, I went to a really small Catholic high school where in my grade, in my friend group, I was the smallest family with seven kids. Um, <laughs> however, a lot of these families... They chose that. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these families, they want lots of kids. They like having lots of babies. 17. 17. Um, but. Is that a choice or a habit? Is that an addiction? What's going on? I I'm sorry. I, 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 so I don't <laughs> think she uses natural family planning. Right. Okay. So, yes. so we're getting what, to natural family planning. So that's planning. what Catholics use as, I mean, some people call it that Catholic birth control. Mm -hmm. um, you test yourself if you, I guess if you're feeling of, very there's, advanced There's lots of it. different ways, but basically, you we know, women- We used it to have, make children. Yes, you can use than, it to make children. Yeah. You can use it to not. And um, and it's not just the rhythm method. A lot of people think that, but there's lots of different methods to be able to track a woman's fertility and know when she can and can't get pregnant. Um, not foolproof. It's, But I mean, it's not foolproof due to human error. I mean, obviously right. you can't, you know, once you know when you can and can't get pregnant, it doesn't, you know, a, a, an actual method failure is super rare, but it's hard to figure that out. It's hard to, um, it's hard to get to a place where human error isn't difficult. For even the best experts, my wife, yeah. uh, the midwives that we went to, I think she still goes, um, the, the woman who was in charge of teaching this method had an accidental yeah. baby. Yeah. Of and course. she said to Katie, if you're going to do this, you need to be open to life. Katie and I do not have Catholic uh, commitments. <laughs> However, we are concerned about birth control in her bloodstream, that kind yeah. of stuff. So we have different concerns about it. That's um, why I said yes, Catholic you have to be and open or crunchy. To life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, crunchy people yeah, like us. Um, do you use Marquette? Is that what she does? The te the the hormone testing? I mean, not anymore, but yes. That's what they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you know, there's also you basal body temperature. You test your ovulation hormones, all of those things. Mm -hmm. Um. However, when we're talking about not having sex, this this is tedious <laughs> and also it requires abstinence for sometimes a large part of your month. Right. And the time that it requires abstinence, that period of time happens to be the period of time that a woman most wants to have sex, that a woman is most, you know, irony is, of is, ironies, <laughs> is, you know, more is most easily orgasms, all right, of these right. things. And the time that is all green and you can go at it is when a woman naturally hormonally less interested does not want sex. Yeah. It has all of the drab hormones going on, you know, <laughs> like, and it's, it's inherently misogynistic. It is. And it, it so that's when I, if, if the goal of this, the goal of, 
and not contracepting, the goal of having a totally fruitful, open, um, unifying marriage is that is is unity is intimacy is all of these things is is at it you know is full intimacy and unity mm-hmm. but in order to have that you're you're doing this thing where maybe you're really not having sex at all and especially people that are hyper fertile maybe are so scared of getting pregnant all of these mm-hmm. things that can lead to married couples to have a lot of stress in their sexual relationships how is that leading to unity and intimacy i don't I don't know. And that, you're I mean, not going to give us an answer here, are you? That, I mean, this, you're listening to my own struggles. <laughs> this is, internal my, own, this is my internal, you know, monologue. And this is when, you know, a lot of Catholics might get mad at me, and I'm sure they would. Um, and maybe <laughs> well, they're, call they're me, not listening to this Maybe show. call me. No, they're not. I know. <laughs> maybe call me not well catechized, which is not true. Well I can tell catechized. you that. I am very well catechized. <laughs> um, what but, does that mean? Like you're not well read enough in the... Yeah. Yes. You're not. Yes. You, you've not. You've not been taught. You haven't learned enough. You're not. You don't really know which you lack. I can knowledge. promise you it's not the case. So it's not like but... a Protestant notion of you lacking the feeling. No, 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 no. Being not well catechized is that you is that. Yeah. And there are plenty of Catholics that aren't well catechized that went through, you know, Catholic school going. Th- anyway, I'm getting off on tangent <laughs> regardless. But didn't pay attention but, in religion class. <laughs> but I, a lot of people would argue that religion class doesn't really catechize. Anyway. Okay. So anyway, but um, so that's when I think the it's lived experience, again, the people that, that, that their job was to come up with these nitty gritty details. And these are very new. I want everyone to know. Um, humanae vitae. Is that a humanae? Human, humanae? Humanae vitae. Don't ask me about Sorry. pronunciation. Man. Which is back from the, what, 40s or 50s? That 1940s? This was written. Um, these are all very new rules because also this is new issues that we're dealing with. And this is still a big family era, the forties and fifties. I mean, this is GI Bill. But this is is also when, you know, contraception, all of these things are, are eventually, yeah. you know, this is all coming. coming. This is, you know, 20th century and it's the church's job to take these really beautiful ideals that I find good, true and beautiful of humanity, of sexuality, of our bodies, of, of how beautiful sex is and how it reveals the mystery of God. And, you know, what John Paul says, that it's our bodies and sex that it is only our bodies and sex that can make the invisible visible, right? That, that you know, brings the divine into our earth. I mean, these really beautiful ideals, but it's the church's job to then apply these kind of heady ideals into practical use. And how do Catholics, how do we as people live out these ideals in our lives? And that's the church's job is to is to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And so we employ our, you know, doctors of the church. We employ our people that have studied this and are experts on morality and philosophy and theology. However, a lot of the people and the people, <laughs> they're, they're priests. These are old men who are celibate, right? right? And I think that they're the guys for the job in a lot of ways, in a lot of other areas, because you're right. Like, they are the people that are prepared for that. But when we talk about marriage and 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 a you know a marital relationship and a sexual relationship um and what that really looks like in the day-to-day these beautiful heady ideals that they write and john paul writes so beautifully and eloquently and and um but he doesn't know the the nitty-gritty of of a married life he doesn't and and how you write in in theory this is beautiful that that sex should be all unifying life giving all of these things the the way that it was designed to be and the nature of sex and all of it's it's great but 
I do think that the way that they have been dictated, sex must be lived out, can often tear a marital relationship apart. And I don't know how, I don't think that's God's design. I don't know if that was, you know, for, for us to. I don't think it is. So. It's not and the I loving say, Christ, right? The Christ of love. Yes. The focus on and love. And so as a, as a person who is in a lot of Catholic circles, and um, I I see a lot of Catholic couples that have um, followed Catholic, Catholic sexual teaching to a T, and it has fl- made their marriage flourish. It's been great for them. I will say natural family planning is a really cool thing in that it does provide, you know, it, it requires the husband and wife to work together. It requires a lot of communication, a lot of discernment about your lives, your mental and physical health, all of your, you know, it, which is great. It doesn't all just fall on the woman. I like that. It's been, you know, that part of it has been great in my marriage. There's a lot of discussion. It requ- my husband is very involved, all those things. And you must remain open to life. Yes. As our midwife said. Yeah. <laughs> so. Because <laughs> it's so not always going to work. That can be a great pro is that it, it, it does, you know, it involves both partners Limits and all perhaps of those the things. number of children you have but yeah. maybe doesn't stop yeah 100 so, percent of those sperms. but all of those things like the communication all of that that can be a great pro to a marriage it can it, i know a lot of couples that have felt like it really brought them closer together it fulfilled them great i know a lot of couples that have followed catholic catholic sexual teaching to a t and it wasn't great for them really mm-hmm. hurt their marriage was hard i know catholic couples that have decided to not follow catholic sexual te- teaching to a t great for them they found a great you know balance i know people that haven't and also didn't like not following catholic sexual teaching and it worked you know like i know Mm -hmm. that's when the lived experience comes into play and i've said that a million times but that is what i think the people who are writing this stuff who who dictate catholic sexual teaching that they're missing is is that every married couple every couple every person is going to be different um their relationship's going to be different what allows for them to have the most complete intimacy and unity is going to be different. That's not, you know, I, I don't think that's black and white concrete for every couple, but, but really would provide, you know, every couple's version of intimacy and what brings them there is going to be different. Um, I and, mean, I'm good with that, man. Yeah. And, and you don't know that <laughs> if you haven't experienced it, you just don't, um, you, you won't really be able to grasp that unless, unless you've been there. And so, that's my issue with that. Well, now that we've handled hand jobs, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, let me make this even weirder. Let's go to some other taboos, sexual taboos from a Catholic standpoint, mm-hmm. and sometimes Protestant as well. <clears throat> so let's let's get back to this idea that sexual desires uh, are part of how we maintain monogamy, uh, right? Yes. By expressing them, but they can also pose a challenge when sex isn't possible or even desired by both mm-hmm. parties, as Riley, you're mm-hmm. saying with the ovulation leaving aside war and birth injuries there are simply times when one partner wants it but the other doesn't am i right confessors this happens <laughs> the longer you're in a relationship the more often often this happens. more often than not that's that's real yeah. life man you got to work your way up to it sometimes yeah. on both sides what ladies don't just assume your man is always ready <laughs> and there are simply times when a vegan or vegetarian back to my metaphor or a pescatarian craves meat humans have invented products and arguably god has invented mushrooms that help to address this I love a good portobello. Uh, I can have a meat-tasting veggie burger that in no way compromises my moral commitments. It's not exactly like meat, but it has the fat content and protein that my body wants, uh, and I'm good to go. 
The Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat Burger helps me to maintain my moral commitment by satisfying a desire in a way that will not lead me to violate my promise to myself and my children. But now, here we go. What I can do with a veggie burger, I'm going to argue, very difficult to do with sex in, a, in the Catholic context, in a Christian context. Yeah. Masturbation. It's that time. The veggie burger of sex, my friends. And by extension, pornography, which the Catholics hate. I got to say, I like angrily. More than the Catholics. It's not oh, just the Catholics. There's a reason I say this, Riley. There was, I don't know if you caught this in the news recently, that the Catholic Church has come up with uh, uh, guidelines on investing, how to invest your money. No. Yeah, so this how? is a new idea. I don't know. I've, I have kicked myself <laughs> off that Catholic social media. Maybe that's why. Oh, this is a new I, I read it in the Times. But um, this is, I mean, I'm sure the Catholic oh, social media would have gosh. caught hold of this. And I, what I read in the article and that made me finally just like slam my computer <laughs> in angst is that there were frequent references to the church's concern that companies they are investing in or, you know, if they're investing in some sort of funds that are invested in multiple companies may or may not be supporting adult entertainment. However, the church was pretty lax, in my opinion, on climate change. So the, <laughs> so the investment <laughs> advice on climate change is maybe the portfolio has some com oil companies in it, but as long as it's not too many. And I was like, oh, you mother effers. I was furious. That, yeah, a little bit of oil, whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyhow. Um, so I just, yeah, the adult entertainment industry, the if, if the white men, the, not all white men, but the, the men, the old men you're talking about are very exercised about this. Yeah. Here we go. Historically, masturbation, pornography, sexual fantasy uh, outside of the marriage context have been on the wrong side of Christian ethics. I put masturbation pornography together because when you masturbate, you fantasize and pornography is basically a way of uh, realizing those fantasies. Uh, and whether that's fantasizing about the hot lifeguard, by the way, at the pool or watching a video of an actor playing a hot lifeguard <laughs> with or without his or her bathing suit, it all sort of amounts to the same thing in Matthew. Yes. Yeah. You're using the person if yes. you're imagining it or if you're watching it. All the same idea. Yeah. The lifeguard at the pool hasn't consented to being... Your fantasy. All those things. Yes. Right. Although the pornographic actress and actor have, but yes. they're still, still bad. Debatable. Still bad for you. Right. <laughs> oh, okay. The f false consciousness? Don't go, don't go there. <laughs> you, you were so good with the slut shaming. I was with you. Okay. So you're lusting in your heart though, my sinner. Theoretically, you can fantasize about your wife or your husband, by the way, while you masturbate. And that's actually pretty much cool. As far as I can tell. I mean, you guys, what, Catholics, you, you're not cool with it because that's a hand job. But they, they, <laughs> Jesus, if I read Matthew, come on now. Is that not a loophole? If we're just sticking with that line in Matthew, which is really where yeah. the whole adultery prohibition yeah. sits. If I masturbate yeah. thinking about my own partner, you're good. Uh, but but that's not so, fun. And, and <laughs> here, go, ahead, it go ahead. It's licit. If you do it, but then you ejaculate into I know, your into partner. Your wife. Yeah, that, that's that, it. Then it's Jesus fine. Jesus didn't say that last then part. Then it's fine. That's yep. that is that's then listen. Your priest made all that stuff up on the side. <laughs> Jesus just said I can't lust after people who aren't my wife. <laughs> so I can go ahead and lust after I, her I, all I, I want. Why didn't we have that sermon on the? I don't know what where he <laughs> where he listed all that out. Thou thou must <laughs> masturbateth thinking of thine wife. Uh, so, so, 
But I mean, that's an interest. I think that's interesting. But we wouldn't the- be having we clear a lot of this up. Yeah, oh, sure. Podcast be a lot shorter. It'd be pretty cut and dry. Right, and we wouldn't right? have this whole weird no. thing about contraception. Everything would be fine. Uh, but I do want to talk about lusting, fantasizing about people who aren't your partner because yes. this Matthew not okay with. So I agreed with Matthew and or Jesus that too much fantasizing about a particular person or too much porn in general is bad for your relationship. But it's also true that sex is an appetite that varies by person and within a person's lifetime, much like the appetite for food, as you've illustrated, Riley. Also like the appetite for food, we can't wish it away. Eating too much is bad for us, but so is not eating enough. We see countless examples for people who attempt to deny their sexual appetites only to go ahead and break even the most generous moral boundaries of sexual ethics. See, for example, a long list of Christian clergy, right? Protestant and Catholic, and conservative politicians. Oh my goodness, these guys are getting into trouble all the time. I mean, fine Bill Clinton, but, you know. (laughs) Yikes. If you refuse to have a veggie burger on moral grounds because it tastes like meat, the hazard becomes that you may break down in the middle of the night and eat half a pig out of your fridge. I mean, this is basically what's happening, right, with these clergy members. John Paul II actually offers us a way out of this bind, unintentionally, I suspect, Riley, um, with his definition of lust as, as you've been saying, a dehumanizing act that renders the other nothing more than a sexual object. By defining lust in this narrow way, John Paul II opens a space for us to discover a healthy and sustainable approach to sexuality that doesn't necessarily confine itself to the strict limits of some conservative Christian commentators. John Paul II suggests that art, visual or performing, depicting naked or barely clothed bodies. Does this sound familiar? There's a whole chapter on it, yeah. Can be permissible. (laughs) I'm sure he's talked about it more than once. Um, It's permissible to gaze upon if the artwork is able to elicit the viewer to take in the body as an aspect of, as Riley's saying, the whole person. A seemingly pornographic work can then be acceptable if it allows us to approach the subject in the fullness of their humanity, which may include their sexuality, but is not limited to it, because after all, it does. Sex is part of the person, particularly the naked body in many of these contexts. The Vatican's full of Of boobs and butts and penises. You walk into the Sistine Chapel. There's Adam hanging out. Letting it all hang out. John Paul II says... When the gift-giving meaning of the body, I'm going to quote him at length here, is obscured, distorted, or misrepresented, art becomes a lie. This is what happens in pornography. The body, which was created to be a free gift from one person to another, is depersonalized and reduced to an object for lust. Just like that lifeguard. The naked human body has a language. It expresses the spirit. When given in trust and love, the body is the basis of a communion of persons because the naked human body has such importance. It must be depicted with great care to preserve its meaning in art. Yeah? Yeah. All right, Riley, I'm going to do something wacky now. I'm just going to warn you. This thought experiment may hurt you. Let's imagine two newlyweds who like to make videos of themselves having sex and post them to a website where you pay them $1 to watch each video. Don't write me asking who they are. This is purely hypothetical. (laughs) This couple posts voluntarily. They are fairly compensated on their own terms, and their material represents sexual expression in the context of a loving relationship. Their materials are situated within a context that makes it clear who they are, how they spend their lives, when they're not having sex. They use their sex-focused videos to share their sexual ethics, their personal values, their desires, 
and their vulnerabilities. Is this possible so far? Is the just t- like the my, situation my you're couple, describing possible? Yeah. yeah and right? we can it's it they're if they're different from John Paul's definition of art, it's really hard to see the line. Like if we're really dealing with people who happen to have sex, but you're you have to like watch them on vacation and they talk about all their ethics and their value. Like like they're doing the podcast, right? Like they're doing our <laughs> our conversation here, and then they just have sex. Yeah. Right? Like we're viewing few full human beings here. And if we watch the whole video, we're we're sort of like engaging with them as whole people. Okay. Right? I'm not I'm not distorting anything yeah. here, right? All right. Yeah. I am or I'm not. I mean, I think it has I haven't been catechized, remember. I, <laughs> I so yeah. But I also think it has less to do with the people themselves and more to do with the viewer, right? Okay. You, you can watch, I mean, the lifeguard at the pool. You could watch lifeguard at the pool do all that kind of stuff too. You can watch lifeguard at the pool, right, uh, be, be a full human person. It's, I think, what the viewer is choosing to view, what the viewer is choosing to receive. I think it has more to do with the person than the subject, right? I think you could... Okay, I'm, I'm trying to process this, If you're this, watching yeah. this newlywed couple... And you're watching them, you know, I don't know, go to restaurants and walk the beach and like... <laughs> and then they have sex. Wash, yeah. But that doesn't mean that you're still viewing them as a whole human person. Well, I... I don't hmm. know. I, I don't know. I think it still has... I, you can get off on that though, can't you? Yeah. I mean, you can find it sexually appealing. I mean, I think a lot of people do. I, I actually think that... I'm. I think you and I would agree that a lot of pornography distorts human sexuality yeah. by removing a lot of the of intimacy. Yes. Um, but a lot of people like it's kind of like porn for women. Yeah. Like reinserts. I mean, intimacy I into mean, the romance equation. Romance novels and I mean all of right. that. Like. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I still think it's it's still kind of a two way street. I think it has less to do with the subject still, and and I don't know what what the viewer is doing and i mean is the viewer then if the viewer is getting off on a couple going about their daily lives are they still not using kind of that couple going upon their daily lives to serve a purpose for them to give them ple- i mean i don't know is is that still to a give form? them pleasure but is it still a form of use is it still a form of i don't know well when i go to the I don't art know museum i'm just asking this. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how do we yeah. differentiate it i guess yeah. from the, if i'm going to the know. louvre and looking yeah. at these beautiful naked bodies yeah. I'm getting pleasure out of it. That pleasure is partially. On, I mean, you could. Yeah, yeah, it's conceivable. Which I think. I think. Yeah. I. I don't know. Does I mean, you're de- not jerking it in the Louvre. I don't mean, get me I wrong. I just want everyone to say I'm like. I. This is me thinking out loud, but I don't know. I mean, does I don't know. Yeah. It's a. Tr- it's a tricky moral scenario, and I know that I've created a tricky moral scenario yeah. because it cuts very close to what John Paul's talking about here. It's just allowing for the sex to be fully realized in a way that he perhaps does not envision. But, you know, if we think about avant-garde theater, you've taken my classes on this subject, people taking off their clothes, sometimes live sex acts are incorporated. Why are you there? I mean, if I'm there, I might be there for the art. Yeah. But does that mean I'm not going to have sexual feelings as a result? So that's why I I still think it comes back to the person. It also comes back to the pluck out your own eye i mean that it's it's not it, it's it has it has to do with you is you walking into the sistine chapel and you know seeing naked people on the ceiling you know does that 
does that cause lust in you? Does that cause you to want? And that's going to be different for every person and every person's deal and every person's, you know, um, and, and if it does, then the, I'm, this is what the church would argue. If it does, then don't walk into the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> then, then don't go to, don't go to museums where there's naked paintings. I like, would challenge them that nobody goes into the Sistine Chapel <laughs> and doesn't say, whoa, Adam is cut. But you can do that. That's fine. That's the point. Like that's the thing is you that can, is you one could, good looking Adam. Is you could say that, and you could, and you could appreciate the beauty of Adam's body, and why, and uh-huh. but does it then cause lust within you? Does it does lust arise within you? I don't even know what you that know? means though. Mm-hmm. That's differentiating between lust and sexual feeling in a way that's perplexing to me. Yeah, you know what I mean. I, I think it, and, and I mean. When the church so it raises sexual feeling in me, but John Paul saying if it raises sexual feeling in me, as long as I'm approaching this couple as full human beings, yeah, those sexual so feelings if, are not improper. In a improper. situation like that, could could it be? Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Like if yeah. Adam is raising lustful feelings, like it's not lust; <laughs> he's raising sexual feelings in me. But I'm appreciating yes. Adam and all the shit he went through. Yeah, yeah, but he's still sexy. This yeah. is a weird way. I know. Of talking I mean, it's such a super hard. Yeah. <laughs> Let me flesh out the scenario. Maybe it'll yeah. help. You stumble across these videos on an internet search. You decide to try out watching the videos. You and your partner have sex every Friday night. Some Friday night, your partner doesn't feel like having sex or isn't around. So you pay a dollar. You buy a video. You watch your video. So you're having sexual feelings, which and you're motivated by sexual feelings, but you're also taking in this couple who you find interesting in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? If your partner uh, is available for sex, you choose not to watch the video. You prefer actual sex with your partner, with your partner, which feels much better. While you are watching this video, and perhaps even before, you're having erotic thoughts about this husband and wife, but you have no plan of ever replacing your partner with them. The fantasy itself may not even involve you participating in sex with them, but only enjoying them enjoying each other. All conceivable in the spectrum of human sexuality. You may even invite your partner to watch some of their videos with you and attempt replicating what you see with your partner. This couple could model closeness and intimacy in a way that helps you improve your relationship. All possible. Okay. Maintaining a healthy interest in sex, even on an off night, may actually bring you closer to your partner. Sometimes when faced with privation, we find other outlets to sublimate our needs to our detriment. Unable to satisfy our sexual appetites, we obsess over work or shopping or video games, and we cut ourselves off from an important and God-given aspect of our humanity. So I guess where I'm pushing on this notion of, I mean, I hear you. So it's almost like if I say to myself, yeah, it's Friday night and I have sex times on Friday night. My wife's not here, so I would like to have sex time. So I'm going to put on these videos. So it is true that I am watching the videos in order to experience sexual feelings. But I am also watching full human beings. You but see? But those human beings aren't your wife. That's correct. And that's where... Neither I mean, is Adam. So, hmm? Neither is Adam. But you're not acting out those sexual feelings on Adam. Like, I mean, are, so... I, I mean, okay. <laughs> I'm not acting it out with them either. Are you... Is are you just watching them? You're just enjoying this. I mean, ultimately, I think masturbation is important here because we're talking yes, about the release definitely. of a sexual urge, yeah. and we're talking about the indulgence, in my opinion, of a sexual feeling in order to maintain sexual feeling. Okay. Rather than becoming caught up in video games or something like we see this a lot in human yeah. relationships, where a man or a woman cuts off those those feelings because they're frustrated by their partner or they're frustrated by themselves, and they you know become work addicted or something mm-hmm. obsessed with their children. Like there's a hundred ways you can yeah. ignore your partner. Yeah. 
Um, but to my mind, this is a way of theoretically maintaining the sexual feeling in a healthy way. So the church would argue. There we go. <laughs> this is what you would see. I mean, and I, I, I see it a lot. This is the response you get is, well, then th- this is a, a marital issue. So. Oh, Lord. So. My wife didn't want to do it on Friday night. Right. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Father? So is it just your wife not wanting to do it on Friday night? Or are you describing when you're saying is somebody then turning to video games, turning to work, becoming a workaholic? That This sounds like a repeated issue then, a long-term issue, not just a Friday night thing. I'm preventing the issue. You're preventing the issue. In a John Paulian way. <laughs> <laughs> I still think there's a difference between, you know, a Friday night. I, I think that most people on the occasional Friday night can... This is what the church would call self-sacrifice. Uh-huh. You would sacrifice for the good of the other, and you would, not, you know, shove it up. and feel. Shove it <laughs> and, and Stuff and it down. Deal with it. You know, <laughs> man up a little bit. And, like, that's what they would say, right? And, and that's what I think most people do when mm-hmm. their partner, you know, you well, it, in, a, in, a healthy, in a healthy sexual, you know, you stuff relationship. It Give it a good stuff. <laughs> well, you just, you man up a little bit. Like, if, you know, if I think if you're having a normal sexual relationship where both of you are generally happy with the sex you're having, the frequency of it. A partner doesn't want to do it one night. You're not like, oh my God, like I need to, I need to release this. I need to, you can just, you're like, all right. You know, I think, I think if, if again, you're generally in a, both of you are happy and fulfilled in your sexual relationship. You shouldn't need right? any of this. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I'm talking about like the ideal here, but again, for one night, if your partner doesn't want to have sex and you, you got to turn to, I think, I don't this know. This nice couple <laughs> they make very wholesome videos. They just have sex in them. So then you is make this, it sound so seedy. But so then is this neat insatiable? Uh, it's only Friday nights, every Friday night. It's not insatiable. But, it's a need that I'm acknowledging. That's sort of like saying, mm-hmm. well, you know, Rob, I get that you're hungry, but couldn't you just not eat for a couple of days? I why? Mean, why would I do that to myself? I mean, the question you, is why. I mean, you die. They're, I mean, they're definitely. I, I mean, survive a couple days, but I'll start to feel it in a different way. I, I mean, yeah, okay. I, I still think that's As a, a hard biological kid. urge. Yeah. Yes. It persists. I am gonna then pers- a little bit on the you saying, well, sexual need isn't insatiable. I mean, you were go- you I'm were going that at that. Hmm? I'm still hanging with that. It's not insatiable, but it is a need. Okay. I'm not going to deny. I mean, in fact, the fact that it's a need is mm-hmm. why I think it gets tricky for our Catholic so, and clergy friends. I'll, I'll finish. An, I'll, I'll, sorry. I was just giving my church response, the church teaching response, which is that you're then called to self-sacrifice on times. You know, that you, you were only supposed to have sexual release with your partner. Your, your partner is the only person that's supposed in, to in inspire sexual release. Inspire. All of that. Okay. All of that. Um, even, I mean, it's even a sin to imagine another person while you're having sex with your partner. Like right. all of that. Naturally. Is, Yes, all of that is is a sin. Right, Jesus said so in Matthew that one time. Mm-hmm. In this the sermon, you know that sermon we were talking about, where y'all, yeah, literally that one time. So again, all of this Catholic, <laughs> all of this. Yes. Um. So that again, the church teaching is that you were then called to self sacrifice. You know, man up, kind of get over it. Okay. However, if this is a turning into a problem in your marriage and that there is a lack of sex is that one person is you know one or either party is unhappy it's then turning into you know an ignore you know it's a a crippling of the marriage all the things you were talking about well then that's when we go to therapy that's when we work on communication that's when we figure out what's going on like 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 that's what then the church's response would be is and i've seen that a lot is then 
let's work on communication. Let's work on how we can compromise here so that we're both achieving the sexual relationship that we need and what lifestyle changes might need to happen. All of those things. um, Well, let me ask you, do you think it's reasonable for for the adult's sexual feelings to be fully processed within a monogamous relationship as uh, contained as you've described? With no fantasy, possible? with no fantasy of other other people, for that to never happen, no. Okay. No. It's a self policing then but that I, I think also, is but problematic. I, but I do think that it's something that you can work for. I do think it's something that you can still be fulfilled in. Um, so it's an unattainable ideal. I don't know about the fantasizing. I th- I think that you could. <laughs> I do. Okay. Wait. But wait. Let me finish what I was. Go ahead. Um. Oh, uh, so well to fantasize. I mean, I think we're gonna get back into this again, where it's the, I don't know, you're, you like another woman's face will never pop into my head. So it's so that's then when it comes back to the intent. So did you intend that? Did you did you plan for and and are you gonna and then <laughs> I'm are you gonna hook if it's an accident? Well, so I mean that's the ejaculation <laughs> thing too, is that you can't ejaculate inside oh. of your wife, but if it happens on accident, it's not a sin. So cool. It's all about intent. I mean that's most of sin. It's it's about intent. So in that, if, if another woman's face, of course it's gonna happen. If another woman's face pops into your head, though, are you then entertaining that? Are you? using that or are you like it's what do you do with those thoughts i mean that's in most of you know do you want me to that's make this harder for you oh, I, I got you so far but i'm gonna make this worse all right wait did i f- oh <laughs> i mean i guess i might get into that but i also think there's a huge difference i mean this is me personally in the masturbation versus pornography issue here okay um I th- Wh- which one's okay so I'm not saying like I'm not Neither saying one. that I'm saying Both me bad. personally okay there's a huge difference in, in just throwing the two together in the context like, of a marriage, I think that, or in morality, okay. I think that is, is that pornography gets a lot messier. And I would say even okay. most non-religious people, a lot of would say that I, there's a, it's a lot, a lot harder. If we're talking about that, there might be a, some moral um, situations slope. where this is permissible. I mean, it, what we're describing right now is incredibly specific and I would say almost impossible to stick to in the terms of, in, of pornography. Um Anyway, oh, so I think those two are very different. Okay. I do. So you're, I, I, you're I think slippery it's, sloping me here a bit. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, <laughs> okay. I mean, I, pornography. It's impossible not to get into the depraved I mean, donkey sex. I mean, pornography and, and masturbation. I would say, I, I, I think it's just they're, they're definitely, I think, two you different separate conversations. The two. There are two different conversations for a lot of non-religious people too, you know. And I think in in relationships as well that I know that you know masturbation is fine, but a lot of people would can still consider pornography to be. Not not cool, you know, in their relationship. Wait a second. Oh, God. <laughs> if it sounds like this couple is violating or causing you to violate biblical sexual prohibitions, I'd like you, Riley, to imagine them a little bit differently. Okay. <laughs> Let's suppose it's thousands of years ago, and the video camera hasn't been invented yet. And this couple, <laughs> instead of recording themselves, decides to write a poem about their experience together and relate their sexual union to their relationship with God. And let's suppose that they decide to share this poem and it ends up in one of the chapters of the Bible. Song of Solomon. (laughs) The Song of Songs shows that Canticle of Canticles, as Augustine called it, shows that it's possible to make sex and sensuality the subject of representation or art, and it's all right if it elicits sexual feelings. Although he explicitly forbids pornography, reading John Paul II with Solomon actually makes space for erotic art, as an outlet for human sexual expression on the part of both the creator and the viewer. Yeah, 
The Song of Songs is hot. Yeah. I oh, it's, I mean, it's beautiful. It it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's I mean, and it fits. I, I will then uh, still argue is that, I mean, but one of my okay. favorite parts of the Catholic teaching on sexuality, again, is, is that the way sex was designed by God perfectly reflects his relationship to us. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in a beautiful way in that, um, again, the central theme in Catholicism of physical unity and that God wants to unite with his creature. Creator wants to unite with his creature. And that the Song of Solomon is this beautiful poem of two lovers. But it's also a um, metaphor for God's love for us and and God's love for his creation. Um, and especially in Catholicism, you know, Catholicism specifically, you have the Eucharist. I mean, it it is... Um, physical unity we, we compare the two all the time in mass when the bread is um goes through transubstantiation becomes the eucharist the priest the moment it happens says this is my body given up for you which is what jesus said the last supper and that is what you know we say in a marital relationship in a sexual in, in in sex this oh, is my body given that? up for you Oh. It's what our bodies say. Oh, oh, good, good, good. <laughs> no, that's, it has to be repeated. <laughs> Riley's not making this anyway. argument, but I do want to bring this up. Riley mentioned metaphor. Yeah. Let's do this a bit. In the year 100, Rabbi Akiva said that the song should not be treated as an expression of love between a man and a woman, but rather as an allegory, with the woman yes. representing Israel and the man God taking Israel out of Egypt. So this is a Judaism before yes. we even get around to Christianity. Christian interpreters, however, followed Akiva and argued uh, that... The woman was the church and the man was Christ. That's something you're probably more familiar with, right? Uh, But there was no real textual evidence to suggest (laughs) that the song was intended to be read as an allegory. In the 19th century, readers started to ask where anybody got this allegorical (laughs) reading in the first place. Some scholars have observed parallels between the song and ancient Egyptian love poems, accentuating the idea that the Song of Songs was always meant to be read as a literal relationship, which you're comfortable with right between a man and a woman modern commentators have often interpreted the song as basically all of the above that's really what you're saying you want it that you like your allegory but you're fine with it being a literal sexual union between two people uh, allegory and it, and that with, is also repeated in other parts of the Bible too, and in church. I mean, I'm also not nearly as hot tradition. as the song of songs. Definitely not as hot. <laughs> so it's an allegory with spiritual overtones and positive representation of sensual love between a male and a female. Let's hear a bit. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water, streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, and its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I have come into the garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh and my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine 
and my milk. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling. My dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew. My hair with the dampness of the night. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I rose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh. On the handles of the bolt, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. The myrrh dripping from the hands and the, the honey and oh, the wind I coming mean, through oh her garden gosh. and her fragrance fills the room. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. We're talking about sexual fluids here for sure. The lock and putting my hand mm-hmm. in the lock. That doesn't sound like well, both we as long as we ejaculate. Yeah. Properly. Again. It's all good. Yep. Use your hands however you please. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Song of Solomon represents a monogamous union encouraging the kind of union circumscribed by the prohibition against adultery. It also opens the door, by the way. I think Riley for my newlywed scenario. When I read my Bible, specifically the Song of Songs, I am reading an erotic representation of a couple of which I am not a member. I am having sexual thoughts and feelings about people who aren't me and aren't described as me and my wife. Isn't that kind of weird? Isn't that a lot to wrestle with? Theologically, I mean, there's strong feelings. I mean, you're, you're talking about a lot of sexual boundaries in the Catholic Church around all these things, masturbation, pornography, on and on. But here we have this book in the Bible that is erotica. Like, there's no debate. You really have to do mental gymnastics to say that's not erotica. It, I mean, it, and it is. Which then suggests that the Bible endorses erotica at the very least, which yeah. to me then creates yeah. a slippery slope between erotica and pornography. I hear you about pornography for sure, yeah. but I think there's a lot of moral gray area in here. So, I mean, so I, I've kind of said it, I'll say it again, the church teaching, like, to that response to that and i see it a lot in like modern day i even in some like facebook groups that make anyway make me laugh song of, of solomon of woman of, or like of what's permissible and what's not uh-huh. and um people like read the song of solomon it's gonna be different for every person because it, it all has to do again with what you how, how you act upon it is the church's teaching okay again so the ladies like, can i read a romance thoughts, novel for some people reading a romance novel like might be fine. Some people watching a sex scene in a movie, they're not get, they're not acting upon it. They're it's not going to drive them crazy. Then it would be permissible for them. like that's when it's about the whole. It's up to you to discern. It's for you to decide. It's going to be different for every person. Different people have different thresholds, turn ons, all the things. So, so for some people, reading a romance novel is going to be fine. For some people, reading a romance novel, maybe it wouldn't be like that. That would lead them to. I would put Whatever. to a celibate priest reading the Song of Solomon. It's going to be hard for him not to maybe have a little experience. But it's a, that's a, that's his deal. Like that's <laughs> you know like that's and it's, is it bad? Hmm? Is it bad? Is it, it morally wrong? Is he jerking off to it? That would be the church's <laughs> thing. Truly, that would be it. That would be it. Is it keeping him up at night? And then is it act? Is is he then acting? You know. That that that's the church's response. Is and that... we blame him, even though it is in his own Bible. Hmm. I mean, 
it's it, it's it's up to him. I don't know. It's in the Bible yeah. saying, the Bible saying, "Here's some erotica. Read this. Enjoy." <laughs> it it is. Yeah. I mean, it can't be saying any other it. thing. Yeah. Weird. Yes. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Because these people are getting it, says the Bible. Listen yeah. to them get it. They yeah. get it hard with some myrrh. Yeah. Grab you some myrrh. Have a good time. <laughs> yeah. I I get it. I get it. I do. I do. All right. <laughs> Still not happy with my newlyweds, but you see how close. I do. No, I, to- I totally it's very understand. Murky. I totally understand. Yes. And yes. I, I, I honestly, I think what I love about this conversation that we're having is the way it circumscribes some things that both of us would agree are toxic about yeah. our culture. I, I mean, maybe my listeners have wondered why I've obsessed so much over Christianity. It's because I believe that Christianity has important moral lessons and spiritual lessons to teach, and that we lose a lot when we say we are above or beyond Christianity. Oh, Christianity is something I've gotten over. Mm-hmm. And we lose a lot of... Uh, Jesus was brilliant, uh, in my opinion. A brilliant moral teacher. And and maybe God. I don't really think so. Uh, <laughs> I could still be... I could go either way on that question. Um, but you see what I mean. I, I mean, we're talking about... We're... <laughs> we're... I'm trying to push pull Riley into my, you know, sinful, you know, view of Song of Solomon. <laughs> but in doing so, what we're both agreeing on is that a spiritual interpretation of sex is important. A whole person interpretation of sex is important. My newlywed couple, even if they're falling outside of the strictures of the church, Protestant or other or Catholic, nevertheless, what I've described, as you're saying, Riley, is not something that we often consider pornography it's certainly out there and there's actually a whole ton of it out there but we think about your porn hub you know I don't yeah. know, <laughs> gang yes. bangs yes. I, I don't know i don't want to be reductive either but it, i mean but you if you also i mean they i mean porn hub like releases their uh, the list of their 10 you know most right. viewed videos up, right? of the year, it's time of year. <laughs> and, i mean there's never one of them that that isn't i think racist misogynistic all the things i mean like incest that kind of thing the violent all everything so yeah yeah the the woman is often not treated in a humane fashion yeah uh which is why i think again it's i i i agree that my you know in, in my opinion none of this is black and white and which is why i think that when it comes to sexual morality it's going to um i do think that there is obviously um concrete truth um, and and moral truth definitely, but mm-hmm. but that there is also gray area that is going to depend on each person, and I think that's also what Jesus brings it back to a lot is that it, it is up to each person to discern within themselves, you know, um, what brings them closer to God, what brings them closer to truth and beauty and all of those things, mm-hmm. and their relationship, what brings their relationship closer to God, what brings their relationship closer to truth and beauty and goodness and all of that, and I and I that's going to differ for each person um and that's so fair. that's the general and, and that's for everyone to decide again this is me personally my opinion but that's for everyone to decide what what brings my relationship what brings myself closer to goodness what brings it closer to god what brings it closer to truth all of those things um but you're not entertaining moral relativism there because there's obviously jet there's also concrete truths you know um within that but because I, I also think that goodness and God and truth, all of those things are – is not relativist at all. I think, again, you what, think good, what goodness is – what good, goodness is a concrete truth. And I think that there are you – know, so 
what brings yourself closer to that though is different for every person mm-hmm. but that that doesn't mean that goodness is different for every person you know what i mean by that go on go on yes. I, I think so, that's worth so i don't think that god I, I think that god is who god is i think that goodness is what goodness is that's not different for every person mm-hmm. i don't think you know that is different for every person but you know how a person might get there we're all created by god differently designed by god differently and our path to finding him to finding goodness is different but that doesn't mean that goodness is different for every person all right okay right you can't just say well killing people brings me close to my goodness well no because good that's not what goodness is you know goodness is not is not killing people goodness is not whatever you know i'm using that as an example but so we're talking about goodness, talking about love. Yes, those things that I still that those community are not relative to me. But again, we all are designed differently. We're all created differently, and we have different ways of getting to God, getting to goodness. Um, so in many ways, you're pushing against the Catholic tradition of complex rules around sex. Sundry I think other there things. are obviously getting I a think, Protestant I think, direction. I think here. most people have rules around sex. <laughs> yes. Um, and I. But do, they're not determined by a council. I mean, and obviously, of I mean, <laughs> I, and I also do abide by the Catholic rules to sex personally. Me, um, and but. But you question me, them. but I also know that that is what has allowed me, my marriage, my relationship, my family to flourish. Mm-hmm. It's what's going great for us. It is bringing my marriage closer to God. It is. It 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 has. Um, heightened our intimacy our marriage that's great like so that so it's working for us but i also can totally understand how that's not going to work and maybe it won't work for us in a different season of our life like it's mm-hmm. go, you know that's going to to um alter and change and again i think it's i think that you're open to flowing with it yes but you think you yeah. can remain catholic in the flow but, th- but there's plenty of people that would disagree with me your ability to fine. flow. They think to remain fine. Catholic is to hold hard and fast to the rules as determined by the council. And that's Cardinals. fine. And um, yeah. And so, and that that's fine. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but I'm saying that this is, yeah, um, me personally. But yeah. And so, yeah. I'll put a button on it. If we read Jesus <laughs> yeah. through the whole of the Gospels and the whole of the Bible, rather than taking his comments on adultery and the Sermon on the Mount out of their full context, we arrive perhaps a bit further than John Paul II would want us to go, by us I mean me, uh, but in a place that I'm reasonably comfortable with. We have sexual feelings toward others, regardless of our marital status. Sexual fantasies are natural and not necessarily unhealthy, as long as they do not dehumanize the subjects of our fantasies, and as long as our fantasies do not overtake our affection for our partners. The Song of Songs demonstrates that sexual fantasies are not anathema to Judeo-Christian spirituality, but can be a healthy spiritualization of our sexuality. The Song of Solomon also teaches us that our erotic lives shape our spiritual lives, and so we must strive to make our sexual feelings as healthy as possible in their relation to others. That's like a stew of things I think Riley would both agree and disagree with. <laughs> I think I agree with... <laughs> On the whole? Yeah. What is the part that I think you may... Our fantasies uh, are okay, as long as we don't dehumanize our subjects. So, I mean, I personally agree with that, yes. But it's not okay, really, from a church. I, it, I think John Paul still, can be read that it's way. It's still debate. Yeah, I definitely agree with. I mean, and that's, I think you could have a really long, dis- we have, and you could go longer debating the intricacies of that. and the. Um, but I, 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 I agree with that, yes. Yeah. When it gets to erotic and all that, we're just going to leave that. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is weird. 
All right. Uh, I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors until such time as we get together and do it again. Riley, my goodness, this was a fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I did so much. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson here with Riley Claxton Hernandez, our resident Catholic. I, of course, am your supreme hierophant, bringing to a close this portion of our conversation on Christianity. Uh, this is was part two of our Christian sex ed uh, <laughs> pair of episodes. Um, but, you know, we talked about prosperity gospel and all these fun things. Oh, you did? Oh, we did, yeah. It was Sam's episode. You got to have a listen to that. Uh, so we're moving on now to occult Christianity, occultists who used Christianity as the paradigm for the work that they undertook. Uh, so we're going to talk about just a few. Uh, we're going to do uh, Anna Kingsford, uh, who I love. Uh, we're going to do Charles Ledbetter, who uh, is neat. <laughs> I don't love as much as Anna Kingsford. And we're going to do the Urantia book, which is a popular one uh, with our listeners who have been looking forward to me doing the Seventh-day Adventist alien tale. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Pulling together biblical themes and Adam and Eve and all sorts of fun stuff here on A Call Confessions. <laughs>